It is August 2020, and I must recertify again that my six-year-old son, Jeffrey, is destitute and that our family doesn't make too much money. It will be easier this year as I emptied his child savings account late last year. Why, you might ask? Every year, we need to do three things to keep our son's access to Medi-Cal active. One, we need to prove every year that Jeffrey still has autism. We need to prove this to California's disability system and that he uses some of their services every year. We'll be doing this later in September. Two, we need to do this to keep his health care referral for autism to California's Medi-Cal program active. Medi-Cal is California's version of Medicaid. Three, and as we're doing now, each year we must prove once again that Jeffrey is sufficiently poor and that we aren't too wealthy to qualify for Medi-Cal. This is less of a crisis, but critical in the long term for him. Why did we make sure our son is broke? Why go through this every year? Well, I have a question for you. Do you know what your out-of-pocket maximum is for your health care insurance? I'm your host, Stephen Davis, and welcome to Episode 6 of Disability Democracy Radio. This weekly podcast is about practical actions that we can take, that you can take, to make a difference in your community. The goal of Disability Democracy Radio is to accelerate the disability community revolution. Find out more at disabilitydemocracy.org. 2017 was quite a year for our family. It was the first year that my son was qualified for all of the services for his autism diagnosis. It was also the year that both my parents had heart surgery. Everyone is fine. But guess who hit their out-of-pocket maximum for health insurance? Not my parents. We did. My son gets a raft of services through our health insurance because of his disability. He qualifies for 16 hours a week of behavioral therapy, an hour of speech therapy, and for a while, he also had an hour a week of occupational therapy. 18 hours a week plus school. Basically, at age six, Jeffrey has a full-time, 40-hour-a-week job. He also has a copay or two every day for each service, $30 or so each. In a typical year, Jeffrey hits his out-of-pocket maximum before April. Even with good insurance, that is several thousand dollars. Our numbers are pretty good. The average additional cost per year for a family of a child with autism is around $5,000. And that is where Medi-Cal, or Medicaid, comes in. For us, a pretty solidly middle-class family with pretty good health insurance, Medi-Cal takes care of two to 3000 a year in copays. By the way, we are lucky. There are many disabilities and illnesses that aren't covered. Welcome to U.S. Healthcare Roulette. For those families, there are grim choices. But as long as we qualify, we're okay. For us, it would be harder but doable if Jeffrey didn't have Medi-Cal. 
and it gives us an emergency safety net to take care of Jeffrey if anything goes wrong with our health insurance. And that is only the beginning. Once Jeffrey is an adult, and if he needs full disability services, he may be eligible for supplemental Social Security to provide basic income as well as his Medicaid. This is a safety net for Jeffrey and other people with serious disabilities, but it is also a trap. You have to be poor to access these services. Because instead of handling disability services as a standard form of insurance like Medicare or your typical Social Security, it is treated as an assistance program. And that makes all the difference. Because America hates poor people. We treat them like they are lazy. We treat them like they're going to scam the system. If you're my age or a bit older, you'll remember the welfare queen stories back in the 1980s. Welfare queens were, so the story goes, usually African-American women who allegedly were scamming the welfare system, pretending they had tons of kids and turning our social assistance programs into a great lifestyle, driving Cadillacs, living in luxury. There may have been one person who did this. The story was essentially a lie, both racist and attack on our social assistance programs. The number of people who defraud our assistance programs is very, very low, and it always has been. And there is a huge cost, both in the system itself and to the individuals who need assistance to try to eliminate fraud entirely. But because of this misconception that poor people People are lazy crooks out to scam the system to live high on the hog of government benefits. The government puts lots of hoops for people to jump through in order to qualify for any sort of assistance services. So while my autistic son was born autistic and will likely be autistic for his entire life, we get to prove to the government that he is autistic every year. You know, in case we are going to defraud the system. And... Once he is an adult, and if he still needs support services, will likely need to do this both for supplemental Social Security and Medicaid. We aren't there yet, and maybe we won't be. We aren't there yet, and maybe we'll never be. But I'm certain that we'll have to do all this paperwork for each service year for the rest of his life. If we forget or something gets screwed up, he may lose his benefits and have to start all over again. So we have to keep him poor. We have to be very, very careful that he never gets much money. And because of the review process every year, we are basically better off making sure he doesn't have any assets in his name at all. There are a couple of important tools to keep him from being totally destitute. First, there are ABLE accounts, which are a savings program similar to those for college. You should definitely set one of these up if you or your child are qualified. It's easy. It's quick. Go set up an ABLE account now, seriously. They are a great tool. Hit pause on the podcast. I'll wait. ABLE accounts give a basic core of savings, but they're quite limited. Next, if you have any assets, like 
a house or stocks or cash or any other savings that you want to pass on to your disabled child or later when they're a disabled adult, uh, for them to have or to inherit, you need to set up a special needs trust. Yes, it's actually called a special needs trust. This basically allows you to put assets for the benefit of a disabled person in a place where it won't affect their eligibility for services. You need a lawyer. Another way the system is set up to make things difficult and discriminatory. But what if my son wants to work or get married? Just a reminder that full episode transcripts and additional resources are available at disabilitydemocracy.org. We welcome your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Let us know how we can make Disability Democracy Radio more accessible and actionable for you. The title of this episode is Why I Impoverished My Son, How Our Healthcare System Makes Disabled People Into Paupers. It is based on the title of an essay, Why I Burned My Book, by the disability rights advocate Paul K. Longmore. The essay was written in the early 1990s, almost 30 years ago. In the essay, Dr. Longmore talked about how our disability system actually works from the inside. It is well worth reading. He talks about his experience as a man with a serious physical disability and his difficulty getting a good education. He ultimately earned a PhD, and then he basically couldn't work. Or he would die because he couldn't afford to pay for his necessary health care services himself, so the only way to keep those services was not to work. Marriage works the same way. Marry someone with any economic assets, you know, like a job, and you could lose your access to disability services. Pathetic paupers by design. Almost 30 years later, and this is still largely true. No job, no marriage. We, us, our system will kind of let disabled people stay alive. This is what we have built. Now, maybe you're thinking, wow, Steve, that is terrible. Tough for you and your kid. Maybe you'll even write a check or sign a petition or something. But you'll think, thank God that doesn't affect me. It does. Or it could. If you live long enough and you're not really wealthy, you may need some serious ongoing health care assistance. Maybe even need to live in a nursing home. Are you rich? If not, you're going to have to get yourself poor. Because, just like with disability, elder care isn't an insurance program in the U.S. It's an assistance program. And you basically have to be poor to qualify. My grandfather, Edwin Brinkman, my mom's dad, was a hard worker. He had a long career for the U.S. Army starting before World War II. He worked his way up from nothing, no college degree, and he retired a full colonel. And then he went on to a long and successful career in the civil service. Ultimately, he had two full pensions for him and my grandmother. Sadly, he died pretty young in the 1970s. I only met him a couple of times. 
but he had done a good job saving for my grandmother. Unfortunately, she developed Alzheimer's in the early 1980s. My mom moved her from her condo in Florida to California, where we live. My mom encountered those same systems. That even though my grandfather had done a great job to ensure a good financial future for my grandmother and a legacy for his kids, there was no way he could have anticipated the costs of care for someone with dementia. My mom went through the process of emptying my grandparents' estate and running down my grandmother's assets so that she could afford to be poor enough to qualify for Medicaid. This happens to many families. And now, while the system won't necessarily take away your house while you're alive, they may seize it and any other remaining assets to pay off the assistance you've used. No legacy for your family, just ashes and dust. So what can you do? Well, there are the same kinds of tactics that we've had to use for our son. Hiring lawyers and such to take away assets so there's nothing to get. Of course, the government, our government, our systems are always getting better at making sure assistance is paid for. But we can make a change. We can start thinking of health care and disability care for the elderly and disabled as collective insurance for everyone. We could decriminalize our assistance programs that are currently driven by pity and contempt. We could allow kids like my son to grow up, work, and marry, and be as productive a member of our society as they can possibly be. And our parents, and eventually us if we're lucky, to end our lives with good health care and able to leave a legacy for our families. This episode of Disability Democracy Radio was sponsored by Not Without Us. Not Without Us is a 501c4 mutual benefit corporation. Our goal is equality for all disabled adults and kids with disabilities. You can learn more about our work at notwithoutus.org. Our strategy is built on democratic action whether it is providing support for disability organizations and allies through our directory at disabilitydemocracy.org, training aspiring local candidates for office, endorsing candidates, or directly working on issues. We'd like to thank Deborah Fields and Dennis P. McBride for their contributions to Not Without Us. You can support Not Without Us with an annual, monthly, or one-time donation at notwithoutus.org join. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, visit disabilitydemocracy.org. You can email us, leave a comment, or even a voice message. I'm Stephen Davis, and on behalf of Not Without Us, we think that democracy comes not from a vote every two years, but from the actions we take in our community every day.